Today, the person who will uh, present our theme is a mother, a physician, and a daughter who has experienced the final days and hours of her own father. She's also um, a woman of uh, clear vision, strong commitment, courageous leadership, and great energy. Um, example, when she was a brand new member, she uh, volunteered to lead and organize our summer getaway, which is kind of like inviting 100 people to dinner at your house one day. Um, very few of us are willing to take that on, and as a newcomer to do that, that said something to me about who she is and the kind of leadership he has. But the other thing I want to say about her courage is just the fact that she's here to talk about facing death. It's a subject that uh, most of us do our best to ignore and make believe it's not there. Uh, but she's aware of a reality that we all are on some level, and that is that when you are spending some time with a loved one who is um, dying, uh, it's a moment that is meaningful and that you'd really like to make the best of. And yet, if it's happening for the first or second time, uh, we don't necessarily able to give our best. It's an upsetting moment. And so unless we have some clarity about what ought to happen in those moments, how is it best to manage those moments, it'll be very hard for us to give us the best. Now, what I appreciate about Barbara is uh, this afternoon, she has a seminar on it. She's here talking about it. Um, she's a person that is willing to stand and say, yeah, we really have to look death in the eye and face it and learn how to manage it. And I really respect her um, for doing that for us as a, as a community. And so I want to welcome, and I feel very honored to um, present to you Barbara Blaylock. People sometimes ask me why I'm so interested in the subject of death and dying. I'm concerned about living, not dying, they say. Well, my answer is that by learning about dying and confronting the things that fear us the most about it, we can better approach our own death as well as the dying of those we care about, and we can even learn better how to live. I've been learning lessons from dying all my life. And the more I learn, the richer the lessons are. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross once said that loss is the graduate program we're all enrolled in, whether we like it or not. And the contemporary Buddhist teacher, Sogyal Rinpoche, says that we might as well make good friends with death because it's the only reliable thing in life. Life is full of change, and each change is a death, big or small. So coming to terms with impermanence is really learning how to live. Preparing for death helps us let go of the unnecessary attachments that create suffering for our lives. It focuses us to be clear about our priorities. It inspires us to create meaning in our lives. It fosters compassion. When you look at it carefully, in the end, Life is really only about two things, loving and letting go. Well, that's fine, you may say. I'm on the path. I can deal with that. But it can all sound pretty theoretical when it comes to our own dying or the dying of somebody that we're close to. Well, how can I deal with the pain of someone else when I have my own potential loss to deal with, we might say? 
How can I say the right thing so that I don't destroy hope and make my friend feel more depressed? What can I do to make things better? I might just make things worse. I don't want to be intrusive. I don't want her to be abandoned, but I just don't know how to act, what to do. Our society has come to regard death as the ultimate enemy, to be avoided at all costs. Most of us have not had good role modeling in dealing with dying. Most of us grew up in a family culture in which certain things were just not discussed, and death was usually one of them. So we may find these questions hard to deal with. We may find them so hard to deal with that we distance ourselves from someone who's dying. We may not get around to calling even a good friend, or we're too busy to visit. In the worst case, we may even refuse to see a dying relative because of tensions in the relationship that were never worked out. Alternatively, we may mask our anxiety with false cheerfulness. We may even hide our feelings from ourselves behind a wall of denial. We may refuse to deal with the reality of the situation because it reflects our own underlying fear of death. And it's so strong that we really cannot believe it's happening to someone that we love. But each of these methods of coping is only effective in shutting out our own pain temporarily. And they isolate us from the person who's dying. In the meantime, we lose an important opportunity to share in one of life's deepest intimacies, to communicate with another person on a soul level. If the dying person is a family member, the result of distancing ourselves can be tragic because we lose the opportunity to give and receive the understanding and compassion that might have healed us both. Jean Shinoda Bolin describes the possibilities this way in her book, Close to the Bone. When life is lived at the edge, in the border realm between life and death, it is a liminal time and place. Whenever we are initiated into knowing something we did not know before, we cross a threshold. A life-threatening illness calls to the soul taps into spiritual resources and can be an initiation into the soul realm for the person dying and for anyone else who's touched by the mystery that accompanies the possibility of death. It's possible within the context of an intimate relationship when both partners are open with each other and know how to take care of each other and themselves for the relationship to evolve higher and higher as one partner is dying. Betty Friedan wrote of a friend of hers who told her that seeing his wife of 40 years through her terminal illness was such a profound experience of loving and knowing another person that he would not have dreamed it possible. He said, I told her, whatever happens, I promise to tell you the truth, to keep nothing from you if you will tell me what you are really feeling and what you want, whatever is happening. I thought it would be important for her to count on that. What I didn't count on was how it transformed me. Those were the most joyous, the most wonderful months of my life, with all the pain and horror. They were shining, extraordinary, glorious moments, being completely open like that. 
Of course, attaining that kind of ideal experience takes two. How to approach one's own death and do it well is a subject for another day. Although learning and practicing the things I'll be talking about today will stand you in good stead when your own time comes. But today we'll explore mostly how to do the other part well. How to be a good companion to someone who's in the last phase of life. A place we'll all be, every one of us, sooner or later. The most important thing we can do, no matter how close our relationship, is to just show up and listen. Just be there and listen. Sometimes that's very hard, but it's the most helpful thing you can do. People who are dying are trying to process an overwhelming series of personal losses. They've already lost their physical health and probably their professional identity. They're gradually losing much of what they had thought of as their personal identity, their hobbies, their skills, and often physical attractiveness. They must deal with the loss of independence. They're often suffering physical pain and ultimately must depend on others for their most basic needs. They're losing all their relationships, their status, all their possessions. In the process of coming to terms with these losses, they find themselves coping with the five major emotional reactions that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross introduced us to. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, finally acceptance. In actuality, of course, there are many more emotions that arise during this time. And once a person has reached the stage of acceptance, he needs to be able to say to everyone who matters to him, these five things in order to reach closure. Thank you. I forgive you. Please forgive me. I love you. And goodbye. In addition to these five specific things, people have a great need to have their personal stories heard. Just telling one's stories has a therapeutic effect if it can be done in the presence of family and friends are willing to listen without judgment. Listening in this way is serving as a witness to expressions of the soul. Michael Murphy, a former hospice physician, wrote in his book, The Wisdom of Dying, witnessing is the expression of our interconnectedness, and stories are threads from the soul that are woven between us. When we are witnessed, it becomes safer for us to pass on because we have felt the connection soul to soul. And it's also safe for the witnesses to let go. Often, after having a chance to tell the stories that may have been waiting years for expression, a dying person will experience great relief from anxiety and agitation and even some improvement in physical pain. So how can we listen in a way that encourages this kind of sharing? What are the practical things we need to know? Well, for one thing, it helps, of course, to make sure that the setting is peaceful and free of interruptions. You should turn off your cell phone. <laughs> Try to make sure the room is pleasant and comfortable. Ask to be sure the other person is up for talking before you launch into a deep conversation yourself. 
Sometimes a person who's dealing with major issues just needs to have some silence but still appreciates having you there. Good listening creates a mood that allows the other to talk about whatever he or she, see there's that cell phone, wants to talk about. Of course, a lot depends on how communication has gone in the past between you. So you need to be realistic. Obviously, you can't change the other person's style of communication. <clears throat> but by being a good listener, you can give him the opportunity to open up if he chooses to do so. Try to listen without analyzing or ascribing your own meaning to whatever is said. Don't interrupt or challenge. If a personal story is being told, think of yourself as a vessel that is open to contain whatever is being shared. Don't be thinking of what you plan to say in response to the other person. Learn to tolerate gaps in the conversation. You may be able to encourage reminiscences and stories by asking open questions. What was it like? What do you remember? Tell me about. But let the dying one choose what they want to talk about. Respond to humor, but don't inflict your own. Don't try to cheer the other person up with jokes unless he or she sets that mood first. Don't make assumptions. Don't say exactly, don't say that you know exactly how she feels, because you probably don't. Don't repeat canned euphemisms about the situation. Gail Warner, who kept a diary published as Dancing at the Edge of Life during her final year, wrote, Last week I heard some old cliches which were said rather lightly. Death is just a transformation. We're all stardust after all. I felt a voice within me protest. That's easy for you to say when you're not facing the prospect of becoming stardust rather soon. It was not the content of the remarks, but their casualness. These things are true, but they're hard truths glinting and sharp like chipped obsidian. Don't give unsolicited advice. There's a tendency for us to want to fix things, to make them better, to make the pain go away. But people who are in pain of a psychological or existential nature don't need that. It only trivializes their problems. It makes them feel that you don't understand and it will discourage communication. What the dying need for us to do is simply to be there, to listen to them if they want to talk, or to sit with them if they don't, or to maybe even cry with them. Don't be afraid to describe your own feelings. It's even okay to say, I don't know what to say. It's just being there and caring enough to make the effort, putting them first, that really counts. You should make your responses empathic. There's a distinction between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy involves actually feeling the things the other person is feeling to the point that they may become overwhelming. If you get lost in the feelings, you may succumb to fear yourself or feeling sorry for yourself as well as for the other. Sympathy can be discouraging. It implies that the other is a victim Sharing feelings has its place, but you can be less effective supporting someone else if you're overcome with your own neediness. 
Empathy, on the other hand, is seeking to understand the other's feelings and remain grounded enough yourself to offer strength and support. It's encouraging, and it sends the message that the other person can cope with whatever is at hand. It empowers both of you. Stephen Levine put it nicely when he said, when our fear touches someone's pain, it becomes pity. When our love touches someone's pain, it becomes compassion. Those who are close to the edge of life are vulnerable. Unless they've been doing a lot of thinking about spiritual issues earlier in their lives, dying people have an opportunity to develop tremendous insight into the spiritual realm as never before. They need our concern and they deserve our gentle honesty about what's happening to them. <coughs> Jean Shinoda Bolin describes the experience of the person who's dealing with a terminal illness in this way. <coughs> Sorry. For soul to be heard, the mind must be still. Then thoughts and feelings can arise as if from a deep well within us. Often these thoughts and feelings are not shared. When they are, the soul looks outward for a moment, and we hope that we can truly share the depth into which illness is taking us. We wonder, if we should die, will our lives have been worthwhile? What do we regret doing or not having done? What do we still want time for? Do we matter? Do the people in our lives really matter to us? Is there a God? an afterlife? What unfinished business gnaws at us? What long-buried thoughts and memories are coming back to us now? What are our dreams saying? When we voice concerns and contents such as these, we are burying our souls. At such moments, we are as if naked. And all too often, when we speak of such matters, the impulse of others is to hurriedly cover up our words with a thin layer of reassurance to which we respond by withdrawing. Revealing matters of the soul makes those who dwell in shallower waters uncomfortable. Soul-searching questions are those that people who are addicted to work or to alcohol or to superficial activities are warding off by their addictions. They do not want to be exposed to their own deep questions as voiced by us. Sometimes we're caught looking inward, feeling something move in our own depths, a thought, memory, an emotion, intuition, wisdom, and someone says, a penny for your thoughts, and we retreat self-consciously. Or this time, we speak of our concerns aloud, and there is joy at finding a soul friend. A soul-level friend is a sanctuary, a person to whom we can tell the truth of what we feel or know or perceive. When something is expressed at a soul level, it is not something for the other to fix or to minimize to deny or to take personally. What is said and felt needs to be received, heard, 
accepted and held as in a womb space where the insights into ourselves and what matters to us can incubate, grow, and develop fully into consciousness. During this time, if we are clinging emotionally and we cannot face the reality that the other person is dying with some equanimity, we can actually retard their dying process. You may be able to cultivate your compassion and put your own fears into perspective by letting go of your need to see the other person in a particular role in relation to yourself and relate to him as another human being on his own spiritual path. When my own father was dying, he was in a coma, so it was too late for him to be able to share his stories with me, but I intuitively felt the need to seek out stories about him from his family and, other, and his friends and other relatives. These stories gave me a more complete picture of him as another human being with all the frustrated hopes and life challenges that any other human being has, and it allowed me to think of him in a more complete way than just as my father. I had a lot of neediness associated with him as my father, but I could just let go of that and see him as another human being, and then I could more easily consider what was best for him instead of just focusing on my own loss. Sometimes a person at the very end of life will actually wait until everyone has temporarily left the room to die, as if they found it too hard to leave in the presence of others who couldn't bear to see them go. If the dying person is a family member, your interactions will involve not only her, but the rest of the family as well. What transpires during this time on the level of the family becomes part of the family story that gets handed down, not only in words, but by example. It is extremely helpful for everyone in the family if a family meeting can be arranged. The earlier, the better. The purpose of this meeting is to allow everyone to express gratitude for being part of each other's lives, to forgive each other, and to say goodbye to the one who's dying. There may be resistance to this idea because of long-standing hurts, but if it is done well, a surprising amount of meaningful communication can be accomplished in a short time. It can be very helpful to have a guide or facilitator present who can ensure that everyone has a chance to speak and no one is challenged or interrupted while speaking. This is particularly true if there are family tensions. As an alternative, an object that designates the person who has the right to speak can be passed from one person to the next. This object is passed around beginning with the dying person until no one has anything else to say. The meeting begins with the dying person telling the story of his illness to the entire group, which may include close friends as well as family. The dying one should be included even if he is comatose or has dementia unless he's so agitated that his presence would make it impossible to proceed. We never know what the experience of a person who appears to be in a coma or has dementia really is. Often a person who's been comatose will wake up and say that they remember every word of a conversation that was held in their presence. 
Sometimes a person who's far into dementia will be surprisingly coherent when the occasion calls for it. So even if such a person doesn't speak, it's important that he be there. During this meeting, each person has the opportunity to share what he or she feels from the heart. This is not a time for blaming or outbursts of anger. What is required is that each person speak of his own experience and its meaning to him in a way that can be heard. It calls for a willingness to let go of drama and bitterness over things in the past that cannot be changed. Each family member should simply share his personal stories in a way that allows compassion and understanding and forgiveness to occur. This may be very hard, and you may think that stirring up feelings from the past can only do harm, and that this is a too dangerous a thing to do at the time that somebody's dying. But it's important to realize that those feelings are there anyway. Coloring everything that happens between all the people involved and the best way to, to move past them as a family and experience mutual healing is to bring them out into the open. Our fears and darkest secrets generally lose their grip once they're brought out into the light of day. It's not easy to speak one's truth in this way, but it can be done. Here's an example, for instance, of something a son or daughter might say to a father who was abusive and is now dying. Dad, it's so painful for me to see you this way. I don't know what to say. We never seem to have spent much time together, and I feel that I hardly even when you were gone. And I had so many dreams about how it could have been different. I know your childhood wasn't easy and that your own father beat you. You and I missed out on each other. You never got to know me, and I never got to know you, and, and that's really sad. I feel bad about that. And now you're not going to be with us much longer, and that feels very scary. I just want to put my arms around you and give you a blessing, and I need your blessing if you will give it. Such a meeting should end with giving and receiving blessings. Of course, there are no guarantees, but it is a fact that if such a meeting can be carried out with the safety provided by a guide who should resist the temptation to try to control or fix things, the healing that can occur may be better than years of therapy. Of course, the sooner such a conference is held, the better. If we all began such a practice in our own families right away, think of the healing that could occur and think of how much easier it would be to hold such a conference when the time for dying actually comes. By then, we would have worked out much of the difficulties that were there to begin with, and we would not run the risk of missing the opportunity as I did, because we never know when a family member might die suddenly. As a matter of fact, it would be a good idea to hold such a family meeting on a regular basis to make it a regular family ritual. The most challenging role of those close to a dying person is that of the primary caregiver. No one who has been in a caregiver role will say that it is easy, in spite of the potential rewards. As a caregiver, your own problems get set aside, as they may seem insignificant compared to those of the one who's dying. You begin to resent all the time and effort expended, the loss of the life you previously had, the constant focus of attention on the loved one, 
and the lack of attention to your own needs, you will feel anger and resentment, and you will feel guilty about that. You can't unburden yourself with friends because it would sound as if you were selfish. And most illness leads, that leads to dying plays out over time, so your complaints become chronic, and even those willing and able to listen at first get tired of hearing the same thing over and over. No one likes to deal with chronic problems, especially chronic complaints. You can't complain to the dying one because it's really not their fault and they already feel guilty about being a burden. You know that, but you still have anger and resentment about the situations and sometimes you may even lose your temper in spite of your best intentions, which only adds to your guilt and your subsequent burden. In the book Grace and Grit, Ken Wilbur wrote elo eloquently of the difficulty he faced with this issue as his wife Treya was dealing with and finally losing her battle with breast cancer. What kept him sane and what is absolutely essential for any caregiver in this situation is to participate in a support group with other caregivers going through the same thing. If you can't find a support group, get a therapist and unload your feelings on him or her. This is the one area in which, of course, it's not good to be completely open and honest with the loved one who's dying. When his wife asked him, how are you doing? Even Ken Wilbur said he sometimes felt like saying, I feel like hell, and my life isn't mine anymore, and why don't you just go jump off a bridge? But of course, that's not a good answer. You want to be able to say, I'm having a hard time today, and then go dump your full emotional baggage at your support group or with your therapist. The other thing that's most helpful when you're dealing with the situation as a caregiver is to try to give up the notion of expecting anything like what you're giving in return. Try to surrender yourself to giving until it hurts, as Mother Teresa used to say, and consider this selfless service a part of your own spiritual path. In order to do this, you'll have to give up some of your ego that keeps you centered on your own needs. But that, after all, is an essential component of your personal evolution. And that's why Ira Byock and some others in the hospice movement urge the dying not to feel guilty about becoming dependent on others during the last phase of their lives because their dependency gives their caregivers the opportunity, the gift of being able to serve in such a selfless capacity. Ken Wilbur wrote this about the experience that he and his wife had as she was dying. We kept each other going, and we became each other's teacher during those extraordinary months. My continued service to Treya generated in her almost overwhelming feelings of gratitude and kindness, and the love she had for me in return began to saturate my being. It was as if we were mutually generating in each other the enlightened compassion that we had both studied for so long. I felt like years, maybe lifetimes, of karma was being burned out of me and my continued response to her needs. It can be very meaningful to create a special event that includes the dying person in a celebration of his life to mark the transition between life and death. Why wait until after he dies? This can serve as a bridge to fond memories for those left behind, 
For example, one couple gave a garden party as the husband was dying. The husband was a gardener, so every guest was asked to bring a plant to add to the garden. After he died, his wife enjoyed caring for the garden, and it reminded her not only of her husband, but also of their friends and of the day they all came together to contribute to it. Now, it's important to keep in mind that things will not always turn out smoothly. Most people die pretty much the way they have lived. If they're easygoing and optimistic, they'll probably die that way. If they're angry and impatient, they'll probably die that way. Some people experience tremendous spiritual growth during the last phase of their lives, but others do not. Some accomplish great healing in a family conference, but others refuse to participate in one. It's important to be there for the dying person and support him in his own way. His way of approaching the end may not be the way that you would do it, but it's his death, and he gets to decide. Don't try to convince him to go in a way that you read about in a book or to convert him to your own spiritual beliefs. Stephen Levine, who's worked with the dying for years and is a wonderful poet, has written these words. I've watched many cling desperately to a rapidly degenerating body, hoping for some incredible miracle, anguished by a deep longing for fulfillment never found in life. I've also met those whose death was an inspiration to all about them, who died with so much love and compassion that all were left filled with an unnamed joy for weeks afterward. Few participate in their life so fully that death is not a threat, is not the grim reaper stalking just beyond the dark window pane. Most fight death as they have fought life, struggling for a foothold, for some control over the incessant flow of change that exemplifies this piece of existence. Few die in wholeness. Most live a life of partiality and confusion. Most think they own the body. Few recognize it as just a temporary, rented domicile from which they must eventually be evicted. Those who see themselves as passengers in the body are more able to let go lightly. I've been with those whose death has brought them fully into life and strengthened their confidence in something since to be ongoing and untouched by the demise of the body. I have seen those whose lives have been fearful come to the moment of death with a new openness that allowed them a sense of completion they had seldom known. I have been with people at the time of their death whose pain and fear had so closed them that they could not say goodbye to those they loved most. <clears throat> so much business was left unfinished that all that were about were bereft of the contact that they had so desired. I've also seen those who cried out, God, not me, when they received a terminal prognosis after several months of deep investigation, quietly close their eyes and whisper, Sweet Jesus, as they die. Even if your relationship with a dying person has been difficult and he's not able to break out of his old defenses that close him off from the possibility of healing long-standing wounds, it's possible for you to use the time together to heal yourself. 
If you can get to the point of forgiving and feeling compassion for the other person in spite of the ways that you may have been wronged, you will be able to feel enormous gratification by being present in a loving way at the end. Stephen Levine wrote about a woman who was dying who had been an abusive mother and was a very angry person all her life. The only one of her many children who was willing to come and be at her bedside was a woman who had been studying Zen meditation. And she decided that she was going to make it her business to be with her mother at the end, no matter what. So during the last few days of her mother's life, she sat by her mother's bed and she sent thoughts of loving kindness to her. And her mother woke up periodically as dying people do, but she was still as impossible as ever. And she looked at her daughter on the day she died and said, I hope you roast in hell. I hope you have the worst possible life. So she died cursing her daughter and just sat, and she was still as impossible, I'm sorry, she, so she died cursing her daughter and her daughter just sat there sending compassion toward her. The mother left with lots of business unfinished in great emotional pain, but the daughter had finished her business. She was healing. She had no control over the way her mother died, but she did have control over the way she played her part. At the end, it's necessary to be as open as possible to whatever comes, making no assumptions. In the last few days to hours, people may exist in a state that is between dreaming and waking. They may appear to be unaware of what is going on around them but they may actually be more aware than ever, just not focusing on communicating to us what they're experiencing. Or they may have an altered state of mind due to their physical state or the medications that they're on. In either case, they may be attuned to subtle things that we, with our worldly preoccupations, cannot perceive. We may feel the need to bring them back to what we believe is reality, but this is doing them a disservice. What is best is to find out what the dying person's experience actually means to him or her. Even if it's distressing, it may be important for him or her to work it through. The distress will often subside on its own, and we can help by being there to normalize their existence, their experience, just by listening to them not judgmentally as a witness. What will certainly not be helpful or reassuring to them is to talk about them as if they were not there or to refer to them as crazy or hallucinating, even if they talk about things that we can't see being present. As they prepare to die, many people enter what has been called a nearing death awareness. They may speak of going on a trip as a metaphor for dying, and they may see people in the room who've died before. They may have a vision of a spiritual figure that's important to them, such as Jesus. These deathbed visions are very common, and they may happen to children as well as to adults. Being present with someone at the very end can be a deeply moving experience that can change the way we look at reality. Some have described seeing a light in the room at the moment of death, and others have described uh, a a look of unmistakable bliss on the person who's just died as they have taken their last breath. 
A very powerful way of saying a final goodbye is to gather family and friends in the room just after the death to share thoughts and to give thanks for the dying person and also for the opportunity that brought everyone together. Each person may light a candle as he speaks. Rituals such as this create a legacy of caring and unity that becomes part of the ongoing family story. After death, creating a way to incorporate the sense of community that's a traditional way offered back before the days of funeral homes is a powerful way to honor the dead and also to facilitate healthy grieving and togetherness among family and friends. By learning how to care for each other in our dying, we learn better how to be with each other in our living. Why wait until someone close to you is dying to get started with your healing? The facts of our past may be out of our control, but the meaning we ascribe to those facts and therefore the way that we craft our life stories is entirely our responsibility. When we have loved well, when we have been there with as much loving presence as we can, then afterward, in spite of our loss and our sadness, we will have had the opportunity to share in a process that brings us a heightened awareness of self and of spirit and of life itself. We may be closer to realizing on an intuitive level something I've heard from an anonymous source. Death is not putting out the lights. It's putting out the lamp because the dawn has come. <laughs>